Turn in your Bible there. While you're turning, after today, uh, we have six chapters left. We're doing two a week. That's three weeks. So a month from today, we will be done with the book of Genesis. And actually, it'll be the Sunday before Christmas, I believe, if my math is right. And so we will actually be moving into the book of Matthew uh, because Matthew chapters 1 and 2 actually deal with the Christmas story. So uh, we will just be rolling straight into Matthew in uh, a little over a month from now. So it's amazing how quickly the Lord has uh, moved us through the book of Genesis. And it's an incredible study. Today is going to be uh, wonderful insights to what God is doing in the hearts of this family And so as we uh, get into it this morning, let's read chapter 43. Let's see, I don't want a bit here. So let's read down to verse 14 together as we get started. Now the famine was severe in the land, and it came to pass when they had eaten up the grain which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, "Go, go back, buy us a little food. But Judah spoke to them, sorry, I'm just trying to start my clock here. But Judah spoke to him, saying, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And Israel said, Why did you deal so wrongfully with me as to tell the man whether you had still another brother? But they said, The man asked us pointedly about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Have you another brother? And we told him according to these words, Could we possibly have known that he would say, Bring your brother down? Then Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the lad with me, and we will arise and go that we may live and not die both we and you, and our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. For if we had not lingered, surely by now we would have returned this second time. And their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best fruits of the land and your vessels, And carry down a present for the man, a little balm, a little honey, spices and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take your brother also and arise, go back to the man. And may God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may release your your other brother and Benjamin, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. Lord, thank you for your word this morning, and as we consider it together, we trust that you will speak to us, you will minister to us, that you will just illuminate to our hearts the things that we need to hear. Lord, there's uh, many hearts listening this morning. May you bring your truth to bear upon every single heart. And may we walk away changed and affected by an encounter with the living God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may remember back when 
the brothers initially in chapter 37 had schemed to get rid of Joseph, their brother, they were very upset with him. And the thing that they were upset with him about seemed to be mostly what you might call the difference between the sins of covetousness and envy. And let me share with you one person's thoughts on the distinction between these two sins, because this is what drove them and their behavior and their treatment of their brother before they uh, sold him into slavery. Envy is a nastier sin than mere covetousness. What an envier wants is not, first of all, what another person has. What an envier wants is for another to not have it. To envy is to resent someone else's good so much that one is tempted to destroy it. The coveter has empty hands and wants to fill them with somebody else's goods. The envier has empty hands and therefore wants to empty the hands of the envied. Envy, moreover, carries overtones of personal resentment. An envier resents not only somebody else's blessing, but also the one who has been blessed. So when Joseph's brothers had initially taken their, um, their action against their brother, they did it out of envy. Remember, Joseph was the favored brother. He was the firstborn of Rachel, and in many ways, uh, their father Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, had viewed Joseph as kind of the firstborn, even though he was way down in the pecking order at the bottom of the, the list. He was brother number 11 out of 12, and then his brother Benjamin was born. And so Jacob always kind of treated Joseph and Benjamin as the two favored sons, whereas that would have normally been occupied by the two older sons, in this case, Reuben and Simeon. And yet, all of their lives, they had been treated, in a sense, as second-class citizens. And so they resented their brother, and that's what ultimately led to them selling Joseph into slavery. So we fast forward now to where we are in our story that we know, of course, that Joseph was sold into slavery. He got to Egypt. The Lord was with him. The Lord opened doors for him. He ended up in Potiphar's house as the chief steward of his house. God blessed him while he was there, but Potiphar's wife, of course, was devious, and she wanted what she wanted, uh, and she tried desperately to get Joseph to lie with her and commit adultery, but he would not, and she took action against him because he took a stand for righteousness. He was cast into Pharaoh's prison. While he was there, the Lord immediately appointed him as the sort of the chief under the guard, and he was responsible for all the prisoners. The Lord was with him through all of that. And then uh, two of the people of Pharaoh's court uh, came in uh, to the prison because they had displeased Pharaoh. And as they had displeased Pharaoh, they had dreams, and then the Lord gave Joseph an interpretation of those dreams. And as Joseph interpreted those dreams, of course, one of them died, because of his sin before Pharaoh, and the other one was restored. That is, the cupbearer was restored to his position. And then Joseph, after two years, was finally uh, brought before Pharaoh because Pharaoh had troubling dreams, these dreams of famine and of plenty. And the Lord used Joseph to bring the interpretation, and when he did, Pharaoh, of course, elevated him in a matter of minutes 
from a guy who was in prison to the, the man who was the second in charge in all of Egypt and uh, likely at that time uh, the second in all of the world because Egypt was kind of in control of the world at that point. And so the Lord had promoted Joseph. The Lord had given him great wisdom and, and Joseph was given the ability and the wisdom to manage through the famine. And then eventually after the seven years of plenty, we, now we know as we read the story because it gave us the timeline, that Joseph had been there about 13 years when he was appointed as Pharaoh's lead servant. And as he was ruling and reigning there through the seven years of plenty and administrating and storing up the grain, when the seven years of famine began to hit, uh, Joseph's family, of course, was affected back in Israel. And so they came down to buy grain, just as so many people other, uh, did from all around the world. And then we saw that interaction with his brothers as they came He ended up imprisoning Simeon. Uh, They did not, of course, know who he was. He looked so different. Uh, They weren't even sure he was still alive. And yet Joseph was there dressed as an Egyptian, acting like an Egyptian, speaking their language. And he spoke to his brothers through an interpreter. And then, of course, his brothers were sent back. And as has already been alluded to here in this story, their goods were in their bags. Their money had been restored. They discovered that on the way home, and by the time they got back and opened all of their sacks and they found all of their money uh, had been restored, they were sort of living in fear. They were sort of dreading going back to Egypt. And they didn't know, of course, about the dream that God had given Pharaoh. They didn't know that the famine was going to last for seven years. And so now we reach a point in the beginning of Genesis 43 where it says, now the famine was severe in the land. And as we read the story, it came to pass when they had eaten up the grain that they had gone back with. Now somewhere into the first year of the famine, it had gotten to the place that Jacob sent his boys down, and that's when they went on the first trip to buy grain. They had heard, hey, that's where you go to buy grain these days. So they had to travel 250, 300 miles down to go and buy grain. And we looked at that story last week. Now, uh, as we read in this uh, passage, uh, there had been some delay. They didn't want to go back down because they had been told, don't come back down unless you have your younger brother with you. Remember, Joseph had accused them rather harshly of being spies, and he said to them, if you come back and don't, don't come back without your brother because I want proof. I want you to bring evidence to me that you're not lying and that you're not spies. And so now as they finally reach this point, uh, probably at this point a good couple of years into the famine, they're having to go back. They had eaten all their grain. Think about trying to, on your, in your car or on your donkeys and your camels, carry back home enough grain to get through, enough groceries to get through a whole year. And that was the position that they were in. So their supplies had run out. They were looking at the the pantries becoming empty and they were kind of going, we really should have already gone back by now on this trip to get more grain. Uh, But we haven't, we've been delaying. And it would seem that the reason they've been delaying is because of the issue of Benjamin. And uh, Jacob says here, you know, go down, buy us a little food. And then Judah speaks up. And we begin to see here what I would describe as a transformation in Judah's life. And we'll deal with that as we go through the story today. But Judah is finally stepping up. Now remember, 
the story of Judah. After uh, Joseph was sold into Egypt, remember, Judah was sort of at the forefront of that deal. He was the one sort of saying, we need to get rid of this dreamer. Uh, He was speaking against his brother. He led the charge. He arranged selling Joseph into slavery. And he also was instrumental in taking his favored garment, his coat of many colors, ripping it to shreds, killing a goat, sprinkling blood all over it, and then taking that back and saying, does this look like the coat you gave your son? So Judah was a part of the devious scheme that broke their father's heart. And then we remember in chapter 38, Judah went out and he did some terrible things. And this was apparently uh, on the heels of what he did in selling Joseph into slavery. He went to the land of Canaan. He took a wife for himself. He had a couple of sons. And as we read in those first few verses there in chapter 38, time had passed. His sons had grown up. He's getting a, a wife for his sons, for his oldest son. And the Lord saw that son, his name was Ur, and he saw something in the the boy who was uh, evil, and remember, the Lord killed him. And then the second son, he said, now you take your brother's wife and raise up seed and offspring to your brother. But that man committed an abomination in the sight of the Lord during that process, and as he did that, the Lord killed him. And then the third son, they said, well, we'll wait till he's old enough. And then Tamar, the wife, the brother's wife, would become, uh, you know, the wife of the third brother. But the, the father, Judah, never did that. <clears throat> and then you remember there was a deception there. And she went in and played the harlot and disguised herself. And he slept with her. And there was a whole series of events that happened there. So Judah had kind of taken a left-hand turn. He had veered off and become a pretty bad dude in all of the things that had happened in his life uh, post-Joseph being sold into Egypt. So now we kind of come back to Judah here. And Judah begins to step up. Judah begins to speak up and he says to the father. And I believe he's speaking up because he's the, the fourth brother. The first three brothers, Reuben and Simeon and Levi had all been evil men. Remember, Simeon and Levi had been the ones who had gone off after their sister had been raped, and they just went in and and obliterated the city. They killed all the women and children and, and everyone. Remember that story there. And so these brothers, these three older brothers, Reuben had gone into his father's concubine. So this this family is a mess. And this is the family through whom the Messiah is going to come. Uh, These are the brothers who are going to become the founders of the nation of Israel. And so now we're to Judah. He's number four in the pecking order, but he seems to be taking the lead. He's stepping up. So Judah spoke in verse three, saying, the man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And he says to the father, to Jacob, If you send our brother with us, we'll go. But if you will not send him, we're not going to go because the man was very explicit. And of course, they don't know that Joseph, their brother, is the man. And they're just saying, look, he was pretty clear with us. In fact, he was so clear that he took Simeon and put him in prison, right? So our brother has been down there in prison for something at least a, a year at this point. And then Israel says, why did you deal so wrongfully with me? And And Israel, Jacob, is still in turmoil over what happened to Joseph. And now uh, one of his other sons, Simeon, was put into prison because of this. And now he's accusing them of ruining his life because 
they told him that there was another brother who wasn't with them. And Judah steps up again in verse 7 and says, the man asked us pointedly about ourselves and our family. He was just asking us questions, Dad. We didn't know where he was going with it. We didn't know what his intention was as he was quizzing us about all these things. So, so how would we know? Then Judah said to, to his father, Israel, send the lad with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. And I myself will be surety for him. He's saying, look, I'll take responsibility. Remember previously, Reuben had stepped up and said, look, if something happens, you know, take my sons and kill them. And he's like, why would I want to kill my grandkids? Because you're making some crazy oath. Here, Judah's stepping up and saying, I'll take the responsibility, Dad. I'll take charge of the boy. I know you love him. I know he's your youngest son, your final son, the only remaining son of your wife, Rachel. So I'll take responsibility. So he says, I'll go. Israel says, okay, go ahead. If you must do it, you know, go ahead and and do this thing. But then it seems in that moment, remember we talked about Jacob and Israel. Jacob, sneaky thief, schemer. And that Jacob had these moments where he just lived according to his flesh and he schemed and he tried to take control and he tried to manipulate circumstances to his liking, to take the, the uncertainty out of the situation. But when he acted according to his given name by God, Israel, which means governed by God, he seemed to be a man who walked in the Spirit. He seemed to be a man who trusted God. And certainly as we looked at the life of Jacob, God had walked him through a process where he took him from totally being a man of the flesh to learning to trust God. But here, as he's having to let go of his boy, Benjamin, it would seem that Benjamin had become for him an idol in his life. And so he's having to learn to let go. So now he sort of defaults back to scheming and he says, okay, if it must be, do this. Here's what I want you to do, okay? Here's how we're going to hopefully appease this guy and make it so that he doesn't uh, act wrongfully toward us. Uh, take some of the best fruits. Take the things that they don't have in Egypt. Take some of the delicacies that we have as an enticement to them. Take the best fruits. Take down some balm and honey and spices and myrrh and pistachio nuts and almonds, all of these things that we have in plenty, but they don't have in Egypt. And take them down along with double money, both the money that um, was returned. And perhaps that was an oversight. And as you return that, take down the extra money. Take extra money with you, more than enough to go. And if you must take your brother, take him also. And notice in verse 14 what he says, because what he says here is actually a moment where he turns and he's giving them a blessing. He's actually praying to the Lord. This verse 14 is a prayer. He says, and may God Almighty, El Shaddai, give you mercy before the man that he may release your other brother, Simeon and Benjamin, And then he says there, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. It would seem also he's casting a little bit of fatalism out there, just saying, hey, what are you going to do? We can't do anything about this anyway. It's not in our control. And yet, fatalism 
is believing that there's, there's fate and that there's no God and that stuff just happens and the universe orchestrates events against us. But we know that's not true. There is no such thing as fate. Fatalism is a pagan, godless philosophy. We are talking about the God of the universe who orchestrates the events of men. God is in control. And so he prays this prayer of weak faith here. And he says, well, if God, if Simeon's not alive and something happens to Benjamin, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna die. So the brothers head back. Verse 15, the men took that present and Benjamin and they took double money in their hand and they arose, they went down to Egypt. And they stood before Joseph. So when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, as he saw them coming, he said to the steward of his house, this man was likely the interpreter that he spoke through, take these men to my home and slaughter an animal and make ready for these men will dine with me at noon. Now we've spoken before of some of the ways, uh, there are so many that Joseph is a type of Christ. And I would just say here this about that. Joseph is a picture of Jesus. He wants to eat with us, meaning that Jesus wants close relationship, close fellowship with us. Jesus is the one who said in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. So Joseph's servant extended the invitation, invited the men to come into Joseph's house. Verse 17, the man did as Joseph ordered. He carried out the, uh, the wishes of his master, brought the men into his house. And then in verse 18, the men were afraid. Now they didn't trust this man, Joseph. Remember, he had a, an Egyptian name and he spoke through an interpreter and they didn't know that it was Joseph. They were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house and they said it's because of the money that was returned in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may begin a case against us and seize us to take us as slaves with our donkeys. They're thinking the worst, right? We're gonna get in trouble here and we probably should have never come back, but we sort of had to, so here we are. So in verse 19, they sort of begin negotiations with the steward. They're sort of acting like their father a little bit. They're beginning to work with the steward here and say, okay, let's sort of begin working with this steward. He's this guy's right-hand man. Let's see if we can find a, a way to sort of soften the blow with him. So when they drew near to the steward of Joseph's house, they talked with him at the door of the house and they said, oh, sir, we indeed came down before the first time to buy food, you know, maybe you remember us. But it happened when we came to the encampment that we opened our sacks and there each man's money was in the mouth of his sack and our money in full weight. So we've brought it back. Look, here it is. We, we brought it back. You know, perhaps this was an oversight. And we have <clears throat> brought down other money in our hands to buy food. We do not know how this happened. We don't know how the money ended up back in our sacks. Now, verse 23, you should probably underline. Because this steward is an Egyptian steward in Pharaoh's service. Of course, he's serving Joseph. And he says, <clears throat> peace be with you. And he speaks to them in their own language. That's why I say he's probably their interpreter. 
peace be with you, he says, Shalom. Do not be afraid. Your God, okay, pagan, godless, Egyptian. Listen to what he's saying. Shalom, do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money and I'm the one who put it in your sacks. This man who serves multiple gods, remember we've talked about there was at least 2,000 gods in the Egyptian scheme of things. And they didn't believe in the one true God. They didn't believe in the, the God of Israel. And here this man is, no doubt under the inspiration of the Spirit of God saying, Shalom, your God and the God of your father has given you the treasure in your sex. This man who does not know the Lord is saying, God's been watching out for you. And he calls the name of God, the Hebrew God. And then he brought Simeon out to them. So the man brought the men into Joseph's house and he gave them water and they washed their feet and he gave their donkeys feed. I mean, this is, he's giving them the royal treatment. They, they have to be scratching their heads. And then they made the present ready for Joseph's coming at noon and they heard that he would eat bread there. And when Joseph came home, they brought him uh, the present which was in their hands, so all of the, the delicacies of their land, the nuts, and all of those things. <clears throat> and they bowed down to him, before him to the earth. Now this is the second time that they are bowing down before their brother. Remember the dream that was given to Joseph about his brothers bowing down to him. Then he asked them about their well-being and he said, is your father well, the old, old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And when Joseph speaks to them through his interpreter in Egyptian, when he asks them about their well-being and is your father well, he's actually using the word shalom. He's asking, is there peace in your house? Second time shalom is being spoken of here. And they answered and said, your servant, our father, Notice how they're speaking to him with the, the incredible respect and dignity. Your servant, our father, is in good health. And when they say he's in good health, they're also using the word shalom. Your servant, our father, is at peace. And he is still alive. And they bowed their heads down and prostrated themselves before Joseph. Then he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son. Now keep in mind, when Joseph was, went out to the field that day to see his brothers, and he, he was going to be killed, but then he was thrown in the pit and then sold as a slave, his brother, Benjamin, was likely about three years old. So he has not seen his brother for over 20 years at this point, probably 22, 23 years. So Benjamin is at least 25 And he says, is this your younger brother of whom you spoke? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Notice how Joseph speaks to his brother, this brother who has grown up without him and he without his brother. And Joseph's heart is beginning to break. Joseph is becoming weakened. He's seeing his brother Imagine not seeing someone in your family, your father, your mother, for over 20 years, 22 years, 23 years. And he speaks in the language of a benediction. 
He speaks in such a way here. This is where the Hebrew is rich and the English is poor. He's speaking with tender paternal affection toward his brother. And this has to be perplexing to these brothers because remember they came into Joseph's house thinking this man is going to throw something at us. He's going to entrap us. He's going to treat us harshly as he did before. And here he is speaking to the youngest brother in this way of blessing, in this way of tender affection. And in verse 30, it says, now his heart yearned for his brother. That is our word compassion. So Joseph made haste and sought somewhere to weep. So you can, you can kind of get the picture in that moment. He's seen his brother. He speaks this blessing, this benediction to him. He speaks with love and tenderness. And all of a sudden he was welled up with emotion and he just kind of went, I'll be right back. And he just had to turn and run out of the room. He couldn't control himself. And he went in the other room, it says, and he wept. You see, in this moment, Jacob's prayer that he had prayed earlier, may God be gracious, may God be merciful, as he sent his boys out. In that moment, his prayer was answered because Joseph had compassion on his brother Benjamin. Joseph's heart was already tender toward his brothers. However, remember the last time Joseph was with his brothers, how they had treated him. I don't mean a year earlier. I mean when they sold him into slavery. So everything that Joseph is doing, we need to understand and see through the lens of someone who is testing his brothers to find out where their heart is. In other words, are these the same guys who sold me into slavery and who wanted to kill me? Is that the way they still feel about me? And by the way, because myself and my brother Benjamin had come from the mother Rachel, and of course they all felt slighted by the fact that their father had favored those two boys over the other 10. How do they feel about it? So Joseph's trying to sort of feel his way through this. And so these things he's saying and doing, we need to understand in the context of tests that God is bringing into their lives through the brother Joseph to find out what is their character, what is their moral fiber. And at this point, Joseph goes into his chamber to weep. And before he comes back out, let me remind you that there's no less than six times that this happens in Joseph's life. Uh, We'll review these as we go along in the coming weeks. In verse 31, then he washed his face and he came out, no doubt had to put his Egyptian makeup back on. And he restrained himself and said, serve the bread. Listen to this. Joseph's sensitive heart was a miracle of God's grace. For years, a dead Egyptian idols and the futile worship that Joseph was living in the midst of surrounded him. Yet he had maintained his faith in God and a heart tender toward his own people. He could have hardened his heart by nursing grudges, but he preferred to forgive and to leave the past with God. And we're coming up on a time not too far forward in the story from where we are right now, where he reveals himself to his brothers. So Joseph could have been hardened. He could have been hardened by this lifestyle. Listen, he lived in the lap of luxury. He could have sort of 
pent up the bitterness in his heart from all those years now, the 20 plus years, thinking about every day what had happened to him and the way he was treated and the way his life has gone. But God's grace and God's mercy and God's favor were upon Joseph. And Joseph chose the high road. Joseph chose, rather than being bitter, rather than being angry, rather than becoming cynical, Instead, he allowed the grace and the love of God and his faith in God to guide him. So in this moment, he comes back in. He says, Serves the bre- serve the bread, verse 32. So they set him a place by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate by themselves. What's happening here is the Egyptians had this idea that they had descended from gods and so they did not fellowship with anyone outside of their own clan and certainly not with Hebrews. So they would not sit at a table and eat with them because they deemed that to be fellowship. The sharing of a meal in the Middle Eastern culture means that you are sharing your life with someone as you eat the same bread and you dip in the same sauces at the table. And so they could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. Verse 33, they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright. Now look at what Joseph's doing. He's messing with them. He's taking these brothers, these 11 brothers, and he's seating them in birth order around the table. Now someone calculated this. I don't know how true it is. Certainly a few of these you could probably guess and get right. But if you didn't know these people... And somebody said to you, now seat them in their birth order around the table. Someone computed that it would be 39 million to one. Those are the odds that you would get it right on the first try if you didn't know these people to seat them in their birth order. And so he did this before them and the men looked in astonishment at one another. How could someone do this? Now what Joseph is doing is setting things up for what's going to happen next because when he sends them back, He's going to put his cup in the sack of Benjamin. Now the cup of a ruler in Egyptian culture was something that they used for divination. They would do things like read tea leaves and those kinds of superstitious things so that the rulers and the leaders could make decisions about governance. And so he's setting up a scenario here. So he sets them in birth order. And then he took servings to them from before them. But Benjamin's serving was five times as much as any of theirs. So they drank and they were merry with him. Now what's he doing? He's testing their loyalty. Are they still as envious of Benjamin as they were of Joseph, Rachel's sons? Because they hated that their father had favored the sons of Rachel over them. So he's testing to see where they are. He's like, I gotta know if these are the same guys or if they're different. So there was this false and this transient joy as they sat before him, they drank and they were merry because the brothers had not yet dealt with their sins and that's what Joseph is ultimately concerned about. Are these changed men? Have they dealt with their sin? What he's looking for is to have they repented. And so he's driving toward that point to find out who they are now. What are they like before he reveals himself to them? And so he commanded the steward, verse, chapter 44, verse 1, 
of the house saying, fill the men's sacks with food. Now they're gonna, he's going to send them off the next morning. As much as they can carry, just bless them. Just give them, give them everything. And put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Do again what we did before. And also put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest and his grain money. And so he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. As soon as the morning dawned, the men were sent away, they and their donkeys. Now when they had gone out of the city and they were not yet far off, Joseph said to his steward, get up, follow the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks and with which he indeed practices divination? So he sort of, again, how did he know the birth order? He's sort of leading them to believe that he was an Egyptian and that he practiced divination and so that the gods had revealed to him their birth order. Is this not the one from which my Lord drinks and which he indeed practices divination? You've done evil. So he overtook them and he spoke these same words and they said to him, why does my Lord say these words? Far be it from us, your servants, that we should do such a thing. Look, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks. I mean, you saw our behavior. We came back, we brought the money we brought initially that somehow ended up mysteriously in our sacks, which by the way, now you said you put in our sacks. Now you've done it again. And now you're coming to accuse us of having stolen. And, and, and what about this cup? We don't even know anything about this cup. Then each man speedily, because they're so confident, they said, let it be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave and you shall be blameless. They're so confident they did no wrong. They've tried so hard to be honest and upright and show integrity to, to Joseph and to his servants and to his household as they realize their livelihood depends on being able to take grain home. And now they knew if they didn't go back home with their brother Benjamin, their father would die from the grief. You know, Judah had taken the oath, remember, that he would be responsible for the brother. So now they're going back. They've got everything that they came for and more. They've got all their money. They've got Simeon. They've got Benjamin. Everything's going amazingly well until this moment when the servant catches up to them. And then they searched and they began with the oldest, again, going through the birth order and left off with the youngest and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. So you can see the drama, right? You can just feel the tension that's building. And he gets to that sack and he opens it up and he goes, ah, oh, what's this? Here's the cup in this guy's sack. And then they tore their clothes. And what happened in that moment, it was they, they instantly went into bereavement. This was like the news that you've just heard that somebody you love and is very dear and close to you has died. And in Middle Eastern culture, for them to hear that awful news, immediately they would just rip their clothes and just scream and cry out and fall down and throw dust on their heads and immediately go into grieving. And that is what happened in that moment because they knew in that moment, having found the cup in Benjamin's sack, their instant idea was Benjamin's dead, right? At very least, he's going to be a servant, so they tore their clothes, they loaded their donkeys, they returned to the city. 
Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house and he was still there and they fell before him on the ground yet again. This is now the fourth time they fell before him twice the day before. And Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you've done? Speaking again through his interpreter, did you not know that such a man as I can practice divination? Didn't you know that I would know that my cup was missing? Didn't you know that I would know these things, your birth order and all of that? But we understand here at this point, before we get into what Judah does, that a crisis doesn't make a person. It shows what a person is made of. And that's what always happens in our life, isn't it? When circumstances go bad, when things happen in our lives that are just, they may seem to us to be random, but you know, God is in control. And God allows these things to happen so that we can understand in that moment through our response, what are we truly made of? Are we a person who is really in love with the Lord and trusting God? Or do we react in our flesh? You see, we can react in our flesh or respond in the spirit. And in this moment, things come to light to Joseph that he had been waiting to hear. Verse 16 of chapter 44, then Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he also with whom the cup was found. So in this moment, Judah and his brothers, they're looking at one another and they're saying, God has finally revealed what we did. He's found us out all these years later, 22, 23 years later. God is now calling us in this moment to account for our sin. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. The man in whose hand the cup was found, he shall be my slave. And as for you, go up in peace to your father. Joseph saying, look, okay, I'm keeping my word. The one who had the cup, we're just going to keep him as a slave. You guys can go. Get out of here. Leave. Not interested in anything else. Then Judah came near to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing. And do not let your anger burn against your servant, for you are even like Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? So he's rehearsing to him. What happened in the story? And he said to my Lord, we have a father, an old man, and a child of his old age who is young. His brother is dead. Now, for the first time, Joseph is hearing these words from the perspective of the family. And he didn't know that his father had been told that he was dead. And that uh, his brother is dead, meaning Benjamin's brother, Joseph, Joseph standing before them, but they don't know it's him. And he alone is left of his mother's children and his father loves him. Now remember, Jacob had favored these two boys over the other 10. And now in the way that Judah is speaking about their deceased brother and their alive brother, is revealing everything that Joseph needs to know. He alone is left of his mother's children and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. You wanted to know, you were testing us, right? You wanted to see if we were who we said we were. You wanted to see if we were faithful or if we were spies. 
And we said to my Lord, the lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. But you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall see my face no more. I'm going to keep your brother Simeon, and you'll never come down and get food again. So it was, when we went up to your servant, my father, that we told him the words of my Lord. And our father said, go back and buy us a little food. But we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother is with us, then we will go down. For we may not see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. So he's recounting this to Joseph, sort of saying, now you set these conditions. And we've tried to live according to what you said. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. And the one went out from me, and and I said, surely he's torn to pieces, and I've not seen him since. Now this is, again, the first time Joseph is hearing what his father thought, what his father understood about his demise. But if I take, but if you take this one also from me, referring to Benjamin, um, Sorry, I lost my place. Uh, I said, surely he is torn to pieces and I have not seen him since. But if you take this, this one also from me and calamity befalls him, you shall bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. In other words, you take Benjamin and something happens to him, I'm done. I, I'm just over this. I just want to die. My life is a mess. His life was bound up in these two sons. He lost one. He could not bear to lose the other. And yet in all of this, again, the other 10 felt slighted, but it would seem that something has now happened over the years. Now I want to pause here and go back to the story of Judah and Tamar. Remember how the Lord took Judah's oldest son. Then he took the second son. And I think something happened in Judah's life through those years. God changed him. He realized what he had done because he took from his father, his beloved son, through deceit and trickery. Remember, Judah was the instigator. He was one of the ringleaders. And now God had taken from him his sons. His family had been so messed up. Remember, he went out and he slept with his daughter-in-law through the, the, the harlotry, through the deception. And I believe all of that must have had an effect on Judah's life. Now Judah has turned the corner He's now taking responsibility for his life. He's stepping up and taking the lead role of the oldest brother. He's taking responsibility for the younger brother. He's now dealing truthfully and honestly. He's now saying, look, how our dad feels about us versus the other two guys, man, that's in God's hands. I'm just gonna do the right thing. I'm gonna do the right thing for dad. I'm gonna do the right thing for our family. And this is what's being revealed now for the first time to Joseph. Now, therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, you're telling us to go and to leave him here. Since his life is bound up in the lad's life, it will happen when he sees that the lad is not with us that he will die. And so your servants will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. If you make us leave here without Benjamin... It's just going to be the worst. I don't know if we can bear to go back and to tell him. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father. I took responsibility for Benjamin. 
saying, if I did not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. Now, therefore, please let your servant, me, remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord and let the lad go up with his brothers. In that moment, what Judah was saying is take my life for his. Take me and do with me what you want, but please let Benjamin go home to dad. You see, in that moment, Joseph realized that not only was Judah different and not only had Judah been the one who was somewhat the ringleader, Not only had Judah been the one who allowed his dad to believe the lie that Joseph was dead. Not only had Judah in many ways been the instigator. All of these are new things that Joseph is learning. Now he's learning that Judah was a new man. Someone says it is when guilty sinners' mouths are shut and they stop defending themselves that God can begin to show them mercy. And in this moment, this is what's happened in Judah's life. He's finally become the man that God wanted him to be. You see, mercy and peace that God has shown them along the way has melted his heart. And he's now standing there pleading for his brother's life. You see, earlier, the 22 or 23 years earlier, he didn't care about his brother's life. He wanted his brother to go away because he had envy And he wanted his brother just to be gone. He couldn't stand him. And Joseph doesn't yet, of course, know what God had taken Judah through in his life. But nonetheless, that doesn't matter. In this moment, Judah is doing the right thing. He's coming up and he's offering his life for the life of his brother. In verse 34, For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father? Now we're going to stop here because chapter 45 has some wonderful surprises for us. This is literally like the cliffhanger where it's the last show of the season and you've got to wait three months for the next show to come to reveal to you what happens. And you can go ahead and read in verse, excuse me, chapter 45, but we're being stopped here sort of in the middle of what's happening in this scenario. But I want to point out this to you. Here's what's happening in Judah's life. It's just like Jesus said, In John chapter 15, greater love has no one than this than to lay down his life for his friends. Jesus spoke those words to his disciples in the upper room because he wanted them to know that what Jesus was about to do is what he expected them to do. Jesus wanted them to understand that for someone to say, I love God and that I've become a Christian and I've entrusted my life to Christ that that person is changed, that person is transformed. And Judah has come to that place, and through Judah's leadership, I'm not talking to you, buddy. (laughs) He thinks I'm calling his name. (laughs) Because of Judah's leadership, God has now set him as sort of the firstborn over the family. God is using his influence to steer these brothers down the right path. 1 John 3 says these words, By this... We know love because he laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. You see, in this moment, Joseph realizes these are different guys. God's changed them. They're not the men that they were when they did the things to me that they did. 
Some person wrote this in his understanding of this passage. He said, we must never underestimate the transforming grace of God. Transformation is a part of what happens with the gospel. Transformation is a byproduct of the gospel. Our role, therefore, is to engage in a sublime complicity. God has always been and still is about the utter transformation of his people. You see, for us today who say that we've been touched by the blood of Christ, that we've been forgiven, you see, there should be in our lives, like what we see happening here in this passage in Judah's life, the demonstration of a change. That the Spirit of God has not only come in, but on our part that there has been repentance. That we have confessed our sin and that we have given that over to God. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have been made new. You see, there should be no shadow, no evidence of the former life in our life today. Yes, we may have been the worst person on the face of the planet, having done the worst things, used the worst language, thought the worst things. But that's in the past. And for those of us who are now in Christ, we are changed, we are forgiven, we are set free. Whom the Son has set free, he or she is free indeed. Judah was a changed man. God elevated him to the position of family leader. He was truly becoming the one through whom the lion of the tribe of Judah would be yielded. But you look at his earlier life, it was a mess. But through God's process of mercy and grace and trial and testing, Judah became the man God wanted him to be. Now here's the question for us as we close today. Will you allow the things that God brings into your life and my life to change us? Will we allow God to bring us to the place that we will yield to him, that we will say yes to him and no to our flesh? A place where we will say, God, I'll do the right thing. God, I have repented. To repent, metanoia means to change our minds, to agree with God concerning truth and, and to agree with God concerning sin. You see, a part of the salvation process is the Holy Spirit convicting us concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. We're coming to the place through the process of giving our heart to Christ that we agree that God's way is the right way, that God's truth is the right truth, that what God said in his word about who I am and how I live trumps what I think and how I feel. We begin to follow the path that God has for us and we begin to, to live obediently to his, his word because this is his heart for us. And when that happens in our lives and when that transformation begins and, and we begin to be different people, not because we're trying to win God's favor, but because we've been changed. We've been changed from the inside out. You see, the things that happen from our lives, the fruit that comes forth from our lives is evidence of the transforming work of the grace of God in our lives. And Joseph saw that evidence that day in his brother and in his family. And next week, we're going to see how he responds to the transforming grace of God in the lives of his family. So today, as we enter this Thanksgiving week, are you thankful for the grace of God in your life?
Have you embraced the forgiveness of God? Are you a transformed person? Are you a changed person? Are you different today than the day you said yes to Christ? Maybe your progress has slowed. Maybe the rate at which you, be, you grew in the beginning, maybe it was a steep curve. Maybe you were just, you know, like, man, Lord, this is amazing. Maybe you were on a slow curve. Maybe you're still on a slow curve. Listen, we grow at our own rate. We control the rate of our growth. You know why? Because we control our, obe- our own obedience. We control our own heart. And God wants us to yield to him. And so this morning, I believe that a part of this, this whole passage of Scripture is to convince me and to convince you to yield to the Word of God, to yield to the Spirit of God, to allow Him to transform us. You see, that, that, that curve that we're growing on and that we're being conformed to the image of His Son Christ can be as low or as steep as our obedience, as our willingness to say, yes, Lord, I believed you when I received the forgiveness for my sins and came into your kingdom and and I want to continue that path and I want it to be a continued steadied uphill thing where I'm growing in Christ, where I'm being conformed to the image of Christ. That's what he wants. Judah was on a path. Will we be on the same path that Judah allowed himself to be on? Lord, we love you. We bless you this morning. We thank you for all that you've done for us. And Lord, we humble ourselves before you and as we sing a closing song, may you just work in our lives, Lord, and may the things that we've been holding on to, may we let them go and release them to to you, Lord. May we just let it go. Lord, if there's stuff we're holding on to, past sins, maybe things people did to us, maybe things they said to us, maybe the way we were treated, may we, like Joseph, learn to let go. May we not be bound by the iniquity of others. May we live in the freedom and the newness that you've given to us. Lord, just as you've forgiven us, so should we forgive others. Lord, their sin is between them and you. And may any sin that others have done against us, may we just release that, Lord. Let it go. Let you deal with it. Because you've dealt with us. You've dealt with us graciously and mercifully and compassionately. And Lord, this morning we say, we love you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. And Lord, as we sing this song this morning that we close with, we just, we just give it to you. We cast all of our burdens upon you because you care for us. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. As we sing the closing